Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey everyone, it's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. We're coming to you from WNYC's The Green Space in front of a live studio audience. Yay! We wish you were here. Sorry you're not, but we're thinking of you. We're here to celebrate the first anniversary of the show. And I was hoping they'd do this after my first 100 days, but apparently that's not how it works in radio. Very cheesy and good. Okay, when we launched the show in the summer of 2018, my mission seemed pretty simple. Bring some perspective and context to politics because, let's face it, there's not a lot of it out there. I also wanted the show to be ahead of the curve, challenging conventional wisdom and identifying trends and topics early before they've been chewed over by cable TV news panels. Like our very first show where we explored the idea that 2018 could be the year of the woman. I had never experienced people doubting my abilities, doubting my professionalism, doubting my qualification based on being a woman. Now, I've certainly experienced my share of racism in this country, but um, the sexism and misogyny was not something that I was expecting. And so when I first encountered it on the campaign, I didn't know what it was. That's the voice of Lauren Underwood. When we talked to her, she was an underdog candidate running in a suburban Chicago district. Now she's Representative Underwood. She was one of a record-breaking 117 women elected or appointed to Congress, bringing the total number of women in the House and Senate to 127. And elections aside, it's been a big year in politics, and we've talked to a lot of people. Eric Holder. Neera Tandon. Scott Walker. Stacey Abrams. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Chuck Hagel. Gary Trudeau. Susan Rice. Andy Carr. Kathleen Sebelius. Carl Rose. This is John Kerry. My name is Julian Castro. Jay Inslee, Governor of the State of Washington. Bill Weld, former Governor of Massachusetts. Senator Booker. Oh, I'm so grateful for this conversation. Thank you so much. You get the picture. Anyway, it's been a great year and we've really enjoyed it. And we're happy you've been along on the ride with us. And we're going to keep going. Right? Right. All right. Now we're going to get down to business. We've got a lot of work to do this morning because today we're here to talk about the Electoral College. Now, lots of Democratic candidates, you heard them in the open, want to get rid of it, arguing it's an outdated relic that gives outsized weight to a narrow group of voters in just a handful of states. Many Republicans grumble, though, that the Democratic calls to scrap the system are just sour grapes. And a lot of smaller state officials worry it would limit their influence. So to kick things off, I'm joined by New York Times columnist and CBS News political analyst Jamel Bowie, who, yes, excellent, who would like to see the Electoral College abolished, and Lena Newton, who's an associate professor of political science at Hunter College, who thinks it's all a bit more complicated. Jamel and Lena, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Um, so, Jamel, I'm going to start with you, a, uh, a headline on one of your New York Times columns said that the Electoral College is the biggest threat to our democracy, which is a pretty big claim. It's a very big claim. Yes. So, why is that? I think, so, to support that claim, I think um, one of the problems looking ahead for the Electoral College is that the just the distribution of the population is such is that more and more Americans are going to be in fewer and fewer states. And so... The prospect of the kind of misfires we had in 2016 and 2000 of the winning 
candidate of the election, the person becomes president, um, losing the national popular vote by larger and larger margins, I think actually is a very significant stress on people's belief in the legitimacy in the system. And it's something that even if you think the electoral college should be preserved, should be at the forefront of your mind of how to diffuse that stress. Um, but I think my like larger argument for uh, getting rid of or at least like significantly modifying the electoral college. It's just that it's sort of out of alignment with the logic of our, of our electoral system and the logic of the presidency itself. Americans understand the presidency to represent the broad American public. The president isn't, isn't at least how, how we see it, isn't elected by 50 separate states. As we, as we understand it, as we talk about it, as the president talks about himself, um, the president is the elected representative of the people, the people's representative vis-a-vis -vis the other branches of government. And so it's sort of just conceptually strange to have a people's representative elected um, by this sort of like, uh, this kludgy method of, uh, of states doing electors and so on and so forth. The misfires is a practical problem. And then there's, I think, the issue that the electoral college that we have isn't the one that the founders actually designed, right? The framers of the Constitution designed the system that the, you know, the, the, the white landowners in the state acting uh, on behalf of the people that they had influence over would gather together, cast votes for electors. The electors would kind of filter through candidates. The candidates, maybe one would win a majority of electors and that person become president. The framers weren't sure that ever happened and so it would go to Congress, the House of Representatives that would then cast a ballot and choose the president. It was supposed to be this yeah, a filtering mechanism given the fact that the country was large that it might, might be hard to find people who could be president, and this is how you would do it. This works twice in 1792, uh, or 1788 and 1792 with George Washington, and then it promptly fell apart in 1796 and then 1800. And since 1800, we've kind of just been finding ways to make sure the Electoral College doesn't uh, violate the will of the voters in some dramatic way. And it seems to me that we should just go the full hog and say, we understand the president to be elected by the people. We understand the popular vote really to be the thing that confers legitimacy upon presidents. And so why not just do that instead and not have this thing that hasn't really worked as designed since its inception. And the people who designed it, like Madison, were, were by the end of his life was like, this isn't really going to work <laughs> given what we're doing with it. Lena, you teach about this, yes. and you hear these things a lot uh, that Jamel raised about why it's not working. Can you give us a reason why it is working, or reasons why it is working, and what it would mean to not have it? Sure. So, I mean, getting back to this idea, you know, that it's this kind of strange institution, uh, that's the first thing that comes across when I talk to students about it. It's not just why do we have it, but what is this weird thing? Who are these electors? It's, you know, kind of this black box for them. So the way I come at this question is a bit differently. Um, just kind of thinking about both the issues that Jamel uh, raised about representation and legitimacy. Those are the two big underlying issues that matter here. Um, and the question is, is whether or not changing the Electoral College or getting rid of it altogether would address those fundamental issues of legitimacy where you don't want, ideally, a mismatch between the popular vote and the Electoral College vote. And to your question about, you know, what, what's a good reason for keeping it, by and large, on the whole, 
the Electoral College has actually magnified the popular vote many times, including in uh, 20, uh, 2008 and 2012. Um, and so even in the recent era, even though it's you know kind of this messy thing, um, it in some ways has granted more legitimacy to a president, even though the possibility exists is in 2000 and 2016 that the winner of the popular vote does not receive the majority of electoral college votes. And so the question is, is do we just focus, are we at the point where we can take a couple of elections within our lifetime um, and say, okay, let's jettison a system that for, you know, f- several hundred years or dozens of years has been, has served us fairly well and provided the legit- both the legitimacy that we need and the feeling of representation of both minority interests and majority interests. Well, and that goes to the heart, and I know a lot of the discussion that you've had, Jamel, is what the intent of the founders was right. in doing this. Now, we what we learned in school, or at least at, at basic civics, was, well, this is to protect these smaller states, right? We don't want a tyranny of the majority. And that if we do not have an electoral college, then it's California and Texas are going to elect every president and New Mexico and New Hampshire, they will have no say. Right. Um, I mean, the inter- to me, at least one of the interesting things about that, at least the argument from Framer's intent is that the first few presidents of the United States were all Virginians. Virginia at the time was the largest state. It was the California of early America. Well, we're Virginians. We we're, we're love we're Virginia. Okay great state. Virginia. Uh, rep the Commonwealth. Uh, wahoo wah. Um, <laughs> uh, but the sort of the the concern in terms of big states, small states at the time wasn't really big states, small states. It was population of people who could actually vote in each state. And so in Virginia and in North Carolina and in Maryland and South Carolina, those were large population states. The problem for the the um, the framers from those states is that half their populations were enslaved people. And so a direct popular vote um, might be fair, and several of them thought it was probably the most fair way, but if you were going to if you wanted a Virginian or a North Carolinian or someone from the South to be able to ascend to the presidency, um, given uh, given the 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 mismatch in freeborn population between the North and the South, that was going to be a problem. Um, I'm, that's not to say that the Electoral College was created solely to protect the interests of slaveholders. I, I think that's actually something you can dispute. But that was a practical thing. That's a practical consideration for the framers. Um, I think in the present. Uh, the, I'm not sure, just on a, on a, on a kind of logistical matter, I'm not sure there's really a, a, a big state domination problem if you were to move to a popular vote, right? Like, if you look at the 2016 numbers, you would have to have kind of every single person in California who can vote, vote for one candidate for it to have that kind of impact. You'd have to have sort of uniform support among voters in states like New York and Texas. And the, I think the thing that Electoral College maps maybe mislead the public in the thinking is these states aren't monolithic. California, four million Californians live in rural places and those are heavily Republican places. There are more rural voters in California than in say Wyoming and Montana and sort of states we recognize as rural. That if you're looking at the United States as a map of populations and not a map of states, then 
the electoral picture actually looks very different. You could imagine, for example, um, a situation where a Democratic candidate is spending a lot of time campaigning in the Deep South. Why? Because in most of those states, 30 to 35, 40 percent of the voters are Democrats, are going to vote for Democrats, and their turnout is quite low because in the presidential election, they effectively don't matter. That if all of a sudden, there is an incentive for Democrats to go to the Deep South, for Republicans to spend time in California or New England, for everyone to kind of go towards the demographics, the sectors, the regions of the country where their voters exist and their voters exist everywhere, then I think the representation problem kind of solves, solves itself. Although, and Lena, we have a little bit less than a minute, then we're going to come back. But would this then just exacerbate what we already have as a rural-urban divide? If indeed, then it's not about states, but it's where do you live by density. Right. It might be an issue by density, but there's also a deeper question about representation. Right now, the way we're discussing this is representation of the voting eligible population. And one of the things we tend to forget is when it comes to the Electoral College, it counts population, regardless of citizenship, regardless of age, regardless of um, you know their status, their um, eligibility to vote, and having registered to vote. And those people right now are counted for mm. the purposes of representation in the Electoral College. And if we get rid of the Electoral College, we have to be willing to understand that there are people who will lose representation uh, as a result of not being able to vote. So one of the consequences then, that's a, a consequence potentially, is that these states that are really big may not have as many representatives. Right, ultimately, California right. may not have 53 congressional mm -hmm. districts if they counted the, that differently or not have the same influence. Mm -hmm. Same with New York, right? These are two states that are not only large, but have large immigrant populations, have large minority populations. And the reason the matters that it's minority populations is minority populations on the whole tend to skew younger. And so you have larger segments of the minority population that wouldn't be voter eligible because they don't meet the age requirement that do receive at least some representation uh, via the Electoral College. And so it's just being wary and being understanding of the fact that jettisoning the Electoral College could have real consequences even for um, representation because we have to think about what facet of representation we value uh, most. And in Congress, at least the way it's been set up, uh, the reason we have bi, bi population is is understanding that there are interests, you know, that need to be represented regardless of voting status. So let's um, go to a potential solution for this. So Jamel, there are a couple of ways to deal with Jettisoning, jettisoning the Electoral College. One is a constitutional amendment. Can we agree that that's impossible? Not Probably not okay. <laughs> All right, so there we go. That was easy. Now we'll go to something that has been around for, I think it's been at least 10 years, maybe a little bit more, this something that's called the National Popular Vote Compact. We have 14 states in D.C. that have pledged to give their electoral votes to the winner of the popular vote. Um, the compact is still 81 votes short of 270. Just yesterday, in time for our show, <laughs> which was, thank you for this, uh, news people, uh, news gods, the Democratic governor of Nevada, Nevada vetoed their popular vote compact bill, saying he was worried that it would lessen the influence of a small state like Nevada, which 
obviously has been a battleground state, both in the primaries and in the general election. Um, So do you want to talk a little bit, Jamel, about what could work? Do you think that the popular vote compact is really the best way to go? Is that likely to happen? Or there's some sort of compromise between constitutional amendment, this popular vote, and something else? I think in terms of circumventing the Electoral College, the compact is probably the best option on the table. Um, States have sort of complete authority to uh, choose and allocate their electors as they fit. Um, In the first election, some electors were chosen, the first presidential election, some electors were just chosen by gubernatorial appointment, for example. There's no rule about how you do this. And so if if you could get 200 uh, states equal to 270 electoral votes to just agree that whoever wins a popular vote is going to get their votes. That 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 is kind of the ball game. But I think I think given that it's we're ten years in and, and still a ways from that, I think that if it even happens will be sometime in the future. Um, for me, and, and since since my paramount concern is I is I think that these misfires are going to get worse. I think all the demographic and population trends of the country suggest that if in 2016 it was a difference of 2.9 million votes, in 2020 it could be a difference if the president wins re-election and if his support continues to stay as low as it does, but it, it continues to stay fairly high in the in the key electoral states, it could be a 4 million vote difference, right? Like, at what point does a misfire threaten to undermine the legitimacy of everything? At what point do Americans say to themselves, listen, in every single election I vote in, whoever wins the most votes wins. But in this one election that is extremely important and given a polarized and highly partisan country, very consequential, my vote seems to matter less and less. And that that is just not good for the stability of a system. So if if that's the concern, I do think there are ways short of abolishing the electoral college that can like mitigate it, can make misfires less likely. The first and most immediate one is just to end winner take all for electoral college votes, right? That Electoral college votes are distributed um, uh, on a proportional level. So if you win 45% of Texas's uh, uh, vote, you get 45% of its electors. And that at least, I think, seems just more, I, for me, seems more fair on, uh, on, like on, the, on the face of it. Um, the fact that you know, winning a narrow majority in a place like Texas or Georgia gets you, or California, not California, but um, Florida, gets you all that state's electoral college votes, I think renders everyone else, renders that substantial population that didn't vote for the candidate kind of irrelevant. Um, And it also would just reduce the odds of misfires. And I really think we should take these misfires much more seriously. They do kind of stress the political system a ton. If presidents who won uh, with the minority popular vote, then govern in sort of a consensus-based ma- manner. It might not be as bad, but they aren't. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but there's but no to that, guarantee. Yes, yeah. and to that point, if you had a popular vote, somebody, you could have seven candidates running, a candidate wins 36% right. of the popular vote. Is that any better? Right, and then that that's the issue, is how do you then... Uh, determine who a winner is. Is it the person who wins a plurality? What is that minimum threshold for the plurality? And there's the bigger issue, too, getting back to this big issue of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. What happens if we get rid of the Electoral College? We tend to forget that our elections are not just 
50 different electoral systems, but they're actually municipal systems, county level systems. I mean, across New York, you don't see the same voting machines from one county to the next. So what happens when you get rid of the electoral college, which keeps everything kind of geographically bounded, and now it's open to a popular vote? And now the vote outtake is very, very narrow. Now you have candidates who are challenging the outcomes in a hundred municipalities. And what, then those go to the courts and the courts are having their own legitimacy issues. It could potentially be very destabilizing. It's not this clear majority will win if we move to a popular vote. Thank you. This was great conversation. We're going to have a little bit more with them. I'm going to say goodbye for right now to Jamel Bowie, the New York Times columnist, Lena Newton, Associate Professor of Political Science at Hunter College. We're going to come back. They're going to answer some of your questions at the end of the show. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. This is Politics with Amy Walter coming to you from WNYC's The Green Space today in front of a live studio audience. Yay. Uh, Well, we can't talk about the Electoral College without talking about demographics. As the country's population grows and shifts, so do the number of Electoral College votes a state gets. Rui Tejera is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and co-director of the States of Change, Demographics and Democracy Project. Rui, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. This is really fun. Okay. We've talked about this for quite some time. You've written a lot about this. We've mm-hmm. been hearing for years that demographic changes in this country were going to make it impossible for Republicans to win a national election for president. And then 2016 happened. Right. So right. what happened? Well, first of all, uh, you know, as someone who's been involved in these uh, demographic analyses, the contention never was that it'd be impossible for the Republicans to win simply would become more difficult over time. Uh, and certainly if you look at winning a national popular vote majority, that actually has been the case. Um, the, de- the way the electoral terrain has shifted has made it easier for the Democrats to garner a popular vote majority, as they did in 2016. However, we have this slight problem with the Electoral College where it's actually quite feasible at this point for uh, someone to win the Electoral College majority, but not the popular vote majority. And if you look at the distribution of the sort of political bases of both the Democratic and Republican Party, that could become increasingly so over time. Can uh, I give an example of that? Yes, would please. Would you like one? Okay. I would, we would all like okay, one. Okay, well, we found in our analyses for the States of Change Project that if not, nothing else changed but simply white non-college voters moved a little bit more strongly in the direction of the Republicans than they already have. So it's just continuing an already existing trend. The Republicans could win an electoral college majority through the year 2036 while losing the popular vote by increasingly large margins. So, and that reflects, you know, the structure of the electoral college where white non-college, more conservative white non-college voters are concentrated in this country, particularly in the industrial Midwest. So. Um, there's a lot of peculiarities now to the relationship between the Electoral College and shifting demographics and voting preferences in our country, which probably amplifies the possibility of a disjuncture between popular vote and Electoral College vote. So Jamel in the, in the previous panel said his concern is that the number, the difference between the popular vote and the electoral vote, that the popular vote difference is going to get larger and larger and larger. If it was 29 
million vote difference. Mm-hmm. It could be four, four million, five million, just keep growing. Did you find that as well? Or Well, it depends on which sort of model or simulation you're looking at. Certainly there are simulations where that's the case. I don't think it's automatically the case, the popular vote. I mean, there are, you know, you sort of manipulate things and you can see the Republicans having a popular vote majority over time. It's not like the Republicans can't get a popular vote majority now. It's just it's more difficult for them. And there are certain conditions under which uh, the Democrats uh, would, in fact, get a larger popular vote majority but fall behind the Republican electoral vote. Or, I mean, for example, if you simply took the demographics of this country as they're likely to evolve in the next 20 years and project them forwards, even holding the voting preferences and turnout patterns of 2016 constant, demographic change by itself would not only amplify the Democrats' popular vote majority from 2016, year on, you know, presidential cycle over presidential cycle, but they actually would start winning the electoral vote, too. That's why the Republicans, if they wish to hold on, they need to, like, move more of their voters in their direction. I know that you all looked at this in your demographic study um, of presidential elections going into the future. We talked a lot about Republicans. Let's talk about the Democratic coalition for a minute. Mm -hmm. There's been this growing debate, especially since 2016, about whether Democrats should prioritize wooing back those white working class, so-called Obama-Trump voters in Mm -hmm. industrial Midwestern states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, Wisconsin, versus inspiring the voters of color, younger voters who didn't show up in 2016 to come and turn out. What did you all find? Okay, well, one thing to keep in mind about white non-college voters, which I think a lot of people may not understand, is how many of them there are. I mean, this is the largest single demographic group, if you break it down this way, in the United States. Our analyses had white non-college voters about 44% of of voters in 2016. Others had it even higher. Um, So that's why it's so important not to lose this, for the Democrats, not to lose this group by ever larger amounts. That's why, as I pointed out, if the Republicans simply shift these, this group of voters farther in their direction, that really gives them a leg up in the Electoral College 2020 and beyond. And that's why, um, if you look at the data and the structure of the electorate, it's very clear the Democrats need to, if, if Hillary Clinton, for example, had simply reduced the shift toward Trump among white non-college voters by a mere one-fifth, she would have won the election. On the other hand, a black turnout matched 2012, she still would have latched the election. So it just gives you a sense of the relative weight of the factors. All factors are important, but some factors are more important than others because of what the weight of them is. Uh, and a, another good example, 2018. If you want to understand why the Democrats did well in 2018, why there was, uh, you know, they had success in the House and so on, uh, the latest analyses by Catalyst, which is this uh, uh, big data firm that uh, works a lot with Democrats, but they do extremely good work. They found that 90% of the gains the Democrats made in 2018 were due to persuasion, not increased turnout, not new voters showing up, not less drop-off from the presidential election. It was primarily persuasion. It was people who voted for Trump or in 2016. Hmm? Or a third party, do you think? Or is it just people who voted for Trump? It's people who voted for Trump primarily, okay. Okay. primarily, okay. yeah, yeah. So, um, so that's why I think our simulation show and I think a reasonable assessment of the state of the electorate suggests that, in fact, 
in some sense, job number one for the Democrats is moving some more voters in their direction, reducing their losses among extremely large demographic groups. You also have to turn out your base at high levels, uh, and the two together would be quite powerful for them. But the idea there's, you know, that somehow you can make up for getting crushed among you know, immense demographics by simply turning out more of your voters, I think is very hard to sustain empirically. We only have about 45 seconds to answer this, but mm -hmm. how enduring do you think these coalitions are that we've seen under Trump and Obama? They stick around for a while, or you think they change and evolve? I think they will evolve. I mean, I think the basic shape is gonna remain the way for a while. I mean, you know, it's hard to see minority voters moving over to the Republicans. It's certainly hard to see white non-college voters moving en masse over to the Democrats. And the white college trend looks pretty stable at this point. I mean, moving more or less in the direction of Democrats. However, the thing I think is interesting to keep an eye on is the generational shifts in this country. Because if you look at whites under 45 in, uh, in the 2018 election, um, they, all, they voted Democratic. And that just shows you that Gen Z, the millennials, and the older half, uh, younger half of uh, Gen X is actually all moving in a democratic direction. So that's gonna reshape the electorate as we in go the future. over time. Yeah. Rui Teixeira, Senior Fellow, Center for American Progress, co-director of the States of Change, Demographics, and Democracy Project. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Great. support a national popular vote because it seems that the Electoral College hasn't really done a lot for us in the past few elections. The national popular vote. It's just seen one man, one vote. It's less crazy than the Electoral College. I have very conflicted feelings. I don't mind the Electoral College, but I would like to see other changes, specifically like is there a way maybe we can change the day we all vote? Can we change it to a weekend voting? I am ready for the national vote versus the Electoral College. Yeah, I'm ready for that. Now, you may have heard your voice here, people sitting at the green space in WNYC, because you shared your opinions on the Electoral College with us before the show. Now, I am joined on stage by Carrie Dan, the political editor for NBC News, and she's been looking at public opinion on the issue of the Electoral College. So, um, Carrie heard a lot of people in the audience saying they want to get rid of the Electoral College. Is that representative of what you're seeing nationally? Well, I'm glad that everyone uh, here is sitting down because the shock <laughs> that will come to you is that uh, the 2016 election made this issue more partisan. What? If you can believe that. I can't. If you can believe that. Uh, this used to be more of a bipartisan consensus that this system was not working. Back in 1970, it was an 80% issue. People wanted to move to a national popular vote. What we found in our most recent NBC News Wall Street Journal poll just at the end of April was that the 2016 election has made this a very, very partisan issue. We did find that a slight majority, 53%, want to move to a national popular vote. 43% want to keep the Electoral College as it is. If you look inside those numbers, though, people in America have figured out where their bread is buttered <laughs> on this. It is about 75% of Hillary Clinton voters who say, let's get the national popular vote in here, and about 75% of Trump voters who say, you know what, I kind of like the system <laughs> as it is. Right. It's funny because up until the 2016 election, there were a lot of folks saying the challenge for any Republican is the so-called blue wall, 
right? right? These states that have been voting Democratic in the Electoral College for years and years and years, except that Trump broke through that and won those states. And so now Democrats saying maybe the popular vote's a better way to go. Right. Do you think, though, that if a Democrat were to win in 2020, that this fervor for getting rid of the Electoral College would go away, that we would go, it would kind of go back to pre-2016 levels? I think it depends to what your fr- previous panels have been talking about, what kind of difference there is mm-hmm. between the, na- the overall national popular vote and the Electoral College. I think the, the fervor is there because of what happened with Hillary Clinton. But keep in mind, after the 2000 election, where we had a similar situation where a Republican president failed to win the popular vote, but won the, won the Electoral College and became president, this was a partisan issue, but not nearly as much as it is now. Mm-hmm. So about 45 percent uh, of Republicans, this is according to a Gallup poll, this is not the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll, but a very similarly worded poll. About 45% of Republicans, even after George W. Bush was inaugurated as president, said, I'm not really sure about this issue. And of course, that's fallen to less than a quarter of Republicans now. I think this is pretty entrenched. You see similar divides in the rural and urban communities. You see rural voters far more likely to say, I think that the Electoral College benefits me, and urban voters far more likely to say, "Mm, I really don't like the way that the system is. You also see it in demographic changes. Black voters are the most likely group overall to say a national popular vote is the system that we should be using. So I do think voters from the last, you know, two out of the last five elections, voters have seen somebody who did not win the national popular vote become president, people have internalized, I think, those messages and have a pretty good sense of how, where they live and what kind of politics they have, which of those two systems is the most beneficial to them and their political beliefs. And um, you spend a lot of time, as I do, paying attention to the 2020 politics of this. We started the show with a montage of almost all of the Democratic candidates running for president saying, let's get rid of the Electoral College. From what you're hearing and seeing on the campaign trail, is this something that voters are pushing as well and they're responding to the voters? And do you think the voters will hold these candidates accountable if they become president? I think voters will try to hold these candidates accountable. I mean, the problem with looking at the division in public opinion that we see today, this is a now of you know a 53, 43% issue. This used to be, as I said, an 80% issue in the, in the 1970s, uh, after the election of Richard Nixon, who just barely squeaked by winning the popular vote. A lot of Americans realized that there was a scenario where somebody could lose a popular vote and still be elected president. And at that time, it was bipartisan. It was an 80% issue. It still went nowhere um, because smaller state senators uh, and were, were incentivized to block any kind of legislative action on it. That same divide exists today but in a much more dramatic way. Republicans are really not incentivized legislatively to make a change to the system that's benefited them two out of the last five elections. Um, So while I think voters will, uh, Democratic voters are gonna try to hold a Democratic presidential candidate accountable on this, I think all of those candidates have to be asked, how do you actually wanna get there? I mean, you've discussed earlier in the show the variety of ways that activists are trying to change the system, but the political will has to be there, and if it wasn't, even there with an 80% majority of Americans, it's difficult to imagine uh, with the divide that we're seeing right now with a major change to to happen in the near future. Right, and that, are are they hearing it on the campaign trail? Are you picking that up? I think you're hearing a lot of Democratic voters looking for institutional change. Mm. We hear the same thing on, for example, the legislative filibuster. A lot of Democrats saying, 
even if we elect a Democratic president and we keep the Democratic House, but we don't have the Senate, how are we going to do these major uh, you know, initiatives that we're talking about? Democratic progressive voters are talking a lot about Medicare for all. When you ask candidates how exactly you're going right. to do that in divided government, if they don't address the legislative filibuster, it's difficult for them to answer that question of That's how right. am I going to get these things done? Um, just quickly, I know that you didn't necessarily measure this in your poll, but I'm curious to hear your answer. We've talked a lot about it on the, the previous panels. Based on the political polarization we have right now, if we have another election where the popular vote, electoral vote are at odds, do you think the legitimacy of the presidency is going to be damaged in the minds of voters significantly? Again, I think it is. it definitely depends on how, how big that margin is. Uh, if it was 2.9 million votes in the last election, if that's incrementally more, voters are going to start to question that. And then you'll have three out of the last six elections. I mean, you will have a lot of voters saying, my voice has continued not to matter in half of the recent elections in my lifetime. On the other hand, there are lots of Democratic or Republican voters out there who will raise their hands and say, I'm from a rural area. I want my voice to be you know, counted the way the founders intended. And you'll hear that message from Republican candidates. Right. Carrie Dan, political editor for NBC News. Carrie, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Right. Here we go. I think we absolutely should move towards a system that involves popular vote, not the electoral college, because gerrymandering is a huge and real problem. I believe counting every vote cast so that voters are valued equally, no matter where they live, is the only way to be truly democratic in elections. I believe that the Electoral College is not a true representation of the votes of the people. And I think it's time to bury the Electoral College. After the 2016 fiasco, they can't be trusted to make any decisions. I'm definitely in favor of the Electoral College. It prevents three or four highly populated areas from uh, making decisions for the entire country. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. We are back with Lena Newton and Jamel Bowie talking about the Electoral College. We're here live at the Green Space on uh, WNYC. Uh, Jamel and Lena were with us at the top of the show, and I wanted to bring them back to answer some questions my producers collected from the audience here as they were coming in. Uh, we have one question from John Paul in the audience who asks, and I'm going to start um, with you, Jamel. Do you think addressing the electoral college issue would be a tipping point to address Senate representation? Again, the idea that these small, these less populated states get equal representation to more populated states. Right. I think, I think if your complaint with the entire election system is simply the overrepresentation of less populated areas, then somebody somebody <laughs> says yes. Yeah, that's my complaint. Um, then, uh, then yeah, the logic of sort of like addressing the electoral college like leads naturally to to addressing the Senate, especially since in the Senate, you know, as designed, and you have a sort of a similar issue there. The Senate, as designed, you know. Voters didn't directly like senators, uh, state representatives elected senators, and in a real sense, the senators represented the interests of the state lawmakers. But since the direct election of senators after the 17th Amendment, 16th Amendment, um, uh, that kind of 
the, the senators now kind of directly represent the people of the state, and it's not a very short jump from there to, well, why have a Senate that, like, is is still based on equal representation of states? So that's, if your complaint is just overrepresentation of sparsely populated areas. But if your complaint is just that, like, and this is mine, that it's fine that we have a house that kind of like represents people and places. It's fine that we have a Senate that represents states, but it doesn't really make sense to have a presidency that also in some sense represents states. If the presidency is conceived of and thought of as representing the people, then I don't think there's necessarily a connection between getting rid of the Electoral College or significantly reforming it um, and getting rid of the Senate. Although I know, I know quite a few progressives see That's the right. Senate as sort of a, an intractable obstacle to progressive policy would like to see some sort of substantial, significant Senate reform. And Lena, you um, teach this um, issue. I'm curious if you can help us understand the changes that we did make to electing the Senate and going from the legislature electing the Senate to direct representation. We did that at the turn of the 20th century. Um, How did that come across? And given that we've We've made significant changes to the Constitution before. How could we do something like that again? Sure. So that's a terrific question because I think that's the biggest analogy that's often made is, you know, we have a direct election of the senators now. Doesn't it make sense then to have direct election of the president because it is a national office? Um, And the 17th Amendment came about, it was actually uh, part of general progressive reforms that were going on at the state and local level and that wended their way into these national offices of the Senate to make the senators more bound to their state constituencies rather than their state legislatures. But it was multipartisan. All the major parties agreed with it. It was multi-state. And so there was kind of this groundswell of of opinion and agreement. And interestingly, it was a case in which you had both labor interests and rural interests, farming interests, aligned in favor of this change. Mm -hmm. And what we don't see right now is a consensus. Right now, this is along party lines, um, as Carrie was discussing earlier. Right. And re- and party lines increasingly are defined by regional, right. Right. regional right. rights, whether mm-hmm. you're rural or, mm-hmm. or right. urban. There's a lot of over. Um, Margaret in the audience wants to know if the Electoral College would be talking about this issue if Donald Trump hadn't won. Mm-hmm. Jamel? I mean, I'm the kind of person who has lots of ideas about institutional reform, so I would be talking about it. Um, <laughs> I think I think in terms of like the popular conversation, it wouldn't be we wouldn't be talking about it had Donald Trump not won. I think we wouldn't be talking about it if Al Gore had won and then Donald Trump won. I think I think there's something about sort of a president like one electoral college misfire and then sh- very shortly thereafter a second one in such a sh- that short time short is what makes it feel very acute to people because that is that is quite unusual that hasn't really happened before. Lena, what do you think? I tend to agree. Um, my students are much more into it. I teach here in New York City, and so everybody wants to get rid of the Electoral College, of course. Um, so this, this is very much a part of the conversation. And how how is it? How is it that 
these two things don't match. And I often have to remind them, usually they do. Usually, again, in the case of two other recent elections in 2012 and 2008, Barack Obama's 51 and 52 percent wins uh, translated into 67.7 percent in 2008 of the Electoral College and 63 percent of the Electoral College in 2012. And that tends to be the norm where there is kind of this uh, legitimating majority that comes out of the Electoral College to then boost that kind of popular vote. Well, and the other thing, Lena, that I think about all the time with the Electoral College, if you go back and you look at which presidential candidate won which states, you don't even have to go that far back. Right. When I first started in politics, California and New Jersey were swing states that Republicans had won, Mm -hmm. right? And that Democrats were winning in Georgia and Montana. So that it evolves. We're now talking about Arizona being a toss-up state, Georgia coming back into the mix, Mm -hmm. Virginia, Colorado. Mm -hmm. So do you buy, though, that over time, this works its way out because of the demographic and, and other changes where people are moving to. Right. I think, I think that's actually the strongest case for leaving things as, the, as they be, that electoral coalitions are not static, that they do change over time, that, as you said, we can see this change in very recent memory. I'd say that the concern, and I kind of touched on this um, on, on that first segment, is that having these sorts of misfires might be okay in a political universe where there is some degree of consensus around national problems, around okay. national solutions, where there is some compromise, where the parties are are pursuing their interests, certainly, but they're, they're not engaging in sort of total political war. But if there is total political war, and that seems to be where we're trending, then it does become a big problem in terms of getting the country to move in one direction when, my, my, I'm going to call them minority presidents, um, uh, govern that way. All right. Jamel Bowie is a columnist for the New York Times. Lena Newton is an associate professor of political science at Hunter College. Lena, Jamel, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. I want to uh, thank our audience who joined us in studio today. You guys were awesome. To the Green Space for hosting us. I also want to thank my amazing team who helped make the show happen every week. Jake Howitt, Vince Fairchild, Ellen Frankman, David Gable, Amber Hall, Polly Irugu, Lydia Jean Cott, of course, the rest of the Takeaway crew who are in the audience today. Thank you so much for listening wherever you are through the magic of radio. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Takeaway.